Purposely Podcast, amplifying the stories of people who are making a positive difference to society and the environment. People inspired by purpose. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. Welcome. This episode of Purposely is a memory of Camilla Batmangali, the founder of UK charity Kids Company, who sadly passed away on Monday, the 1st of January, 2024, while celebrating her 61st birthday. My interview with Camilla actually was recorded in October 2020, episode 18 of Purposely. So really early days for us. It was during COVID lockdowns and restrictions, which she actually felt quite positive about. Camilla goes into her founder story with Kids Company, as well as the story of its demise in 2015. Feels like a really fitting do to give you this opportunity by republishing this episode and give you a chance to listen to her story in her own words and the defense to a lot of the criticism she got. Enjoy. And uh, really looking forward to to our conversation. I would, I was wondering actually how COVID has been for you, how the lockdown is, um, how you're spending your time, how, how has it been? Well, um. I've been um, very happy in lockdown. I think if you've got a happy head, wherever it's taken, it will generate joy, no matter what the circumstances. And I'm lucky to be blessed with that kind of head. So I've spent my time in lockdown just problem solving children's circumstances and organizing a, a food delivery uh, project for very poor families. So I've worked and uh, just delighted in the changes of the light in the trees. Yeah. It, and it's been, yeah. the environment's kind of enjoyed the rest, I think, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I think this is a time where you really discover, you know, your core values, if you can sit with yourself and um, the people who are close to you. You know, it, it's brought a lot of people back to the essence of what's important. Absolutely. The story now focuses on Camilla's early years, in particular her schooling in Dorset. Enjoy. at Sherbourne Girls, uh, School for Girls in Dorset, and you were um, doing frequent trips home to, to see your family. Um, but then, then there was the revolution in Iran. And, and how, how was that for you and your family? It was um, very shocking because I was watching it unfold on TV uh, while I was at Sherbourne. So I lived in these two mad worlds of watching my country fall apart uh, on TV, whilst Sherborne was uh, adhering to its normal routines. So there was a big split. And then my father was taken as a prisoner uh, because he was part of a group of wealthy individuals that the revolutionary uh, forces wanted imprisoned. And uh, also, sadly, because of this, uh, the fact that my father was taken as a prisoner my sister committed suicide. So it was a tough time. Yeah. Um, you know, it caused enormous upheaval. And I haven't been able to go back to the country, even though, of course, I have deep love for it. Mm. Yeah. And did your, did your parents, were they able to join you in the UK or they weren't? My father escaped um, about four years later. He actually walked through the mountains from Iran to Turkey, and he uh, 
he skinned a sheep to wear the wool. And I was at Warwick University under a pseudonym because I wasn't allowed to use my name because there was a risk to my life. Um, and the police at Warwick um, came and told me that my father had um, crossed the borders and we were reunited in Warwick University canteen after about five years. It was an extraordinary experience. Wow, incredible. So your father was Feridun Babangalic? Feridun Babangalic. And whilst he was in prison, they didn't have enough medicines. He trained as a doctor at St. Mary's. And um, he discovered that when he gave water to the prisoners, the pain of their stomach ulcers subsided. So when he left Iran, he wanted the the research to be carried out, why water worked, and the pharmaceutical companies wouldn't do the research. So he published a medical academic book on it. And actually, uh, now the science of all this has advanced so much, and it's evident that histamine is involved in the process of pain and water dilutes histamine. So that's why it was working, although it's more sophisticated than I've described. But the point was that, um, you know, he was then able to follow through with helping a lot of people with um, their pain syndromes using a mixture of diet and water. Fantastic. So well ahead of his time. And so you, so Sherborne, you know, it's incredibly sleepy, that part of Dorset. Um, as I said, I've driven mm-hmm. past it many a time. Did you, did you feel like you fitted in? Did, was that a good experience? So um, when I was a child in Iran, uh, I really had a sense already from a very young age of being very different. And uh, I don't mean better than, I just mean different. And I knew that I wanted to dedicate my life to working with children Uh, that commitment was absolutely clear from when I was very young in fact my mother registered for a child development uh, publication uh, and the publication used to arrive for me on Wednesdays I used to climb into bed and try and read it so uh, by the time I joined Sherborne I was already very clear what I was going to do with my life And I was very lucky because uh, I had a sense of fun and uh, I was uh, able to create fun for the other girls. So I didn't feel um, an outsider, Uh, even though I was different, I felt incredibly accepted. And in fact, the other way around, I often set the agenda, but it was a touch naughty. (laughs) Brilliant. And one thing, one thing that really struck me when I came to meet you all those years ago, and uh, just south of the river, I think it was in Lambeth, was that you, yeah, you you dress really differently. So you could not get a more colourful dresser than yourself. Was, was that something that started back at um, Dorset School for Girls, or did that come later? Yes. Oh no, it started there. People think I did it for branding. Absolute rubbish. The reason I dress the way I do is because I have this extraordinary joyful intense energy that needs expression every day so i basically bung together a whole lot of fabrics uh uh, you know several scarves on my head lots of different kinds of costume jewelry lots of colorful clothes you know and i go out like it's a party Mm. 
and that started at Sherborne and I used to paint my shoes and do all sorts of things and be in detention all the time uh, because of it. But I was already interested in, you know, dressing uh, the way I wanted to. And of course, because of my medical conditions, I'm large size. I have um, a lymphedema uh, problem where I've got a lot of fluid. But I, I've never had the difficulties uh, related to the psychological problems of being large because I've always been able to just be who I wanted to mm. be and, yeah. and not worry about what people thought. I mean, great to be so young with such a clear mission. Uh, and also, yeah. despite it being a very quite straight school, you know, you could carve out your own personality. So you ended up heading up to London, from what I understand, and you ended up at the uh, with the Tavistock, Tavistock Centre, Antioch Uni, doing a psychotherapy course. But that was after university. So you went via Warwick. Yeah, yeah. So what happened? I was initially very interested in using the arts therapeutically. Camilla now moves to her founder story, but before we hear about the start of Kids Company, she talks about the, the beginnings of Place to Be, another UK charity which she was involved with at the very, very start. Enjoy. It was sometime in the early 90s, yeah. yeah. And, um, and I, I set that up because there was a little girl who'd been brought to me for therapy and she wouldn't talk at all. In fact, she was recommended by an educational psychologist. And I went and did a home visit and realized the mother wouldn't be able to bring her to therapy at a clinic. So I went and saw her in the school and used a suitcase of toys and art materials. And she disclosed that she'd been sexually abused since she was five years old, so for two years without having the capacity to tell anyone what was happening to her. Um, so I then realized that there must be large numbers of children who are being abused and who don't have anyone to talk to and who can't make their way to clinics. So we have to go to where the children are in schools and set up therapy programs there so that they can access it. And that really took off Kate Middleton is now uh, one of its patrons. And then um, I went on and set up Kids Company in my early 30s. Yeah, I'm interested in that transition. So so leaving a uh, place to be, was, was that because you wanted mm -hmm. more autonomy? Well, my vision, what I've now realized is my vision for Place to Be was to have the work in schools and to have the work at street level. But what I've realized is that sometimes organizations can only survive if they fit the size, and by size I mean the psychological size of the system that can house it. And it felt like it would be too much at the time for the work in schools and the work on the street to be combined because the systems at the time in social services and funding and so on didn't have room for that sort of scale to accommodate it. So I made sure that Place to Be was 
safe. And then uh, immediately I left to set up Kids Company to start the street work. And as it happens, Kids Company had the work in the schools, the therapy in the schools. We were in about 40 schools every year. And we had 11 street level centers in London, Bristol and Liverpool where the children were self-referring mm. for support. Yeah, and I visited um, the Bristol one. I also visited the one of the London ones as well. And, and um, it struck me, it's sort of therapy meets social work meets education and then sort of holistic care back into the families. Is that right? Would that be? Yes. No, you're absolutely right. Everything we did at Kids Company, we learned from the children. Uh, when I first started Kids Company, one of the things I noticed, we used to have a long blue bench because it started in a railway arch in Camberwell. There was a long blue bench and these kids used to sit on this bench for hours wanting to come into the room to talk to me. And I noticed they were not shoving or pushing each other, or rushing each other. It was as if they knew that if they came into the room, such intimate conversations were being held that it couldn't be interrupted. So I'd get up and be in that room from nine o'clock in the morning. And I swear I would not leave often nine, ten at night. I wouldn't come out of that room because one after the other, kids were coming in and sharing their life stories and their experiences. And it's in these encounters that I actually learned that trauma is systemic in the sense that it affects not only the psychology of these children, but the way they are physically, the way they interact, it impacts their learning. And over time, as I'd interviewed more and more children and been a witness to these horrific narratives of what had happened to them, I began to see patterns. Um, and when I was sure of these patterns, I started uh, going to the British Medical Society and I asked them to convene an experts group so that we could actually start researching what was happening to these children biologically and the changes that were taking place in their brains as a result of neglect and trauma. And this was, of course, you know, some 25 years ago. So it wasn't such prevalent knowledge at that time. No, and I remember the, I'm talking to you about it, actually, and talking about the kind of trauma manifesting into people's brains and then altering their state. And, and you know, the, I think there's more evidence now, you know, the, more people have joined you in that. So... That, those early days um, with that street level service and, and it's developing quite quickly. Um, one thing that struck me is, so you have a sort of theatre background uh, from an earlier life. You, you've trained as a psychotherapist and it struck me that you had a, a real ability to um, bring kind of support, glamour uh, and people to the street. And, and you did that through incredible ability to communicate um, and articulate. Uh, is that always, is that how you kind of see it? You utilize those skills? So, so what, what I thought is every, um, every segment of society uh, has a field. So uh, the way I designed and thought about Kids Company is based on what I noticed 
uh, on the mosques in Iran, the design of a mosque. If you look at a mosque very carefully, you'll see this incredibly ornate design. But actually, if you really pay attention, it's in fact just one circle that multiply repeats itself. And society is organized in a very similar way. There are circles or fields uh, where um, clusters of individuals gather. So there is the art field, the music field, the sports field, the fashion field. And what I did was actually look at all these fields in British society, work out who the power brokers were in them, and they all had these uh, power brokers. For example, the fashion field at the time was Alex Schulman, who was the editor of Vogue. And then I would go to those power brokers, bring them down to the railway arches, to Camberwell, or show them what was happening to these children, and genuinely ask for their help. And these people often wanted to join a, a creative project that was coming up with solutions. And then we would work out a an activity that we could do in their field that would generate funds for us and at the same time raise awareness. So Alex Schulman organized for Gwyneth Paltrow to interview me about child protection uh, for Vogue. And then uh, Brian Adams, the musician, took the photograph. And that's how I did every field, the business field, the sports field, found the power brokers, brought them together and generated money that way. So we ended up being able to raise about 20 million um, a year, 20, 24 million a year. And it came from 77,000 different sources in 2014. Mm. So there were a lot of people supporting yeah. us. Yeah, and I mean, one thing struck me when I was reading your book is that your, um, your portrait is hung in the National Portrait Gallery, is that right? Or, and your clothes are on display, um, were on display in, uh, in a design museum. Like, so you, how, how did you, you know, even get meetings with, with those people? How did you go sort of walk off the street? This is the interesting mm. thing. I never... I turned down everything that had to do with promoting myself. Mm. So, for example, when they asked me to go on Big Brother uh, or uh, uh, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here in the jungle, I turned all of those down because I would not do anything that was about promoting me. But I would do everything where I could raise awareness uh, or use the opportunity to raise awareness about the children and their issues. And this was like a, a spiritual philosophy that I followed. I was very, people think I just did it, you know, by chance. Actually, I worked really hard. My team worked really hard. I was uh, at work often till 11, 12 o'clock at night because I wouldn't, I didn't even want a letter going to our donors that wasn't properly personally signed. Mm, yeah. You know, because I wouldn't allow anyone to generate a lie of, you know, signing letters on my behalf or any of these things. That's how integral it was. It was about building authentic relationships and mobilizing people's goodness. So my portrait ended up in the portrait gallery because they wanted to do yeah. that. I never asked. Your mission's been very and clear the from the beginning, hasn't it? Like your, what you said about your mission. Very. And, and so just while we're on fundraising, like, 
you are an incredible or kids company what incredible fundraisers i mean i had you down as raising 123 million pounds sterling uh and then the government um attract you know from the government uh over 40 million like they are incredible numbers and and um but it was more than that because it was uh, in a given year it was about 11 million on top of the 20 million that came in in pro bono so we had a warehouse where we would get all the reject designer goods and then redistribute them into our kids' homes. Uh, or we would get food and gifts. And I mean, it was just like by uh, by the 20th year, this thing was running like clockwork. Mm. And it's such a pity that they shut it down because it was so effective. Yeah. And, and you know, it'd be good to get into that. So... um. I remember you, you were like, you and Kids, Kids Company were sort of the darling of the city and going, what you said is really fascinating about those different fields, um, you know, whether it's sport, celebrity, fashion, the city, um, people were beguiled by you. Um, your ability to communicate, has that always been a real strength? Is it, it sounds like it has been uh, from a very early age, communication. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I think if you're passionate about something, um, I have two assets. One is that I am, on one level, severely learning impaired. You know, I've got, like, learning difficulties and I did my degrees on tape. So if I grasp an idea, believe me, uh, it's been really simplified. And because of that, I can then communicate really complex ideas in a way that's really accessible to other people because it took so long for me to get it myself. Mm. So in that respect, I was very good at translating, for example, complex scientific material for our staff and getting them to work around the emerging learning. And in terms of my communications with the business world, I, I was genuinely... Uh, first of all, devoted to the children, but also I was genuinely fond of these business leaders. I liked them. You know, I really liked them. I, I felt um, personally loyal to them, you know, and each time they gave me money, I cried. Mm, mm. You know, because I, I really liked them as people. Yeah, yeah. You know, and you can but I could never get a fundraiser to raise as much money as I could. And I tell you why, because... Uh, turn up to a meeting, look at this business leader and think, oh, no, he's not interested in maths. He's interested in gardening. And on the spot, I would create a gardening program for him and <laughs> sell it to him. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'd walk out of there with money. <laughs> Fantastic. So one thing that struck me when we were, I could say, working together, you know, we were... Um, uh, yeah, I remember you yeah. lot. I remember the sort of L shape shape of the room. Do you know the tables were going right yeah, round? Yeah, and all of you were sitting. I remember it like it was yesterday. I think we, we were one of those um, business people giving you a grilling. But what yeah. what um, struck me actually personally was, um, you know, you you found this charity. You you have the real strong mission. You grow it to a certain level. Um, but you, you know, you've just described to us that you actually couldn't let go of the detail. Um, the fact that kids company went on to, cl to close and we'll, we'll talk about that, uh, in very dramatic circumstances, but was it case, a case really of, of, for you experience a bit of founder syndrome in the sense that 
if you'd gotten for for you if you'd gotten and been able to trust somebody second in command or a really strong group of core team below you that you wouldn't have had to have done all that stuff or you know stay in the office till 11 and sign off everything write every letter is are there any regrets for you around that in terms of being able to trust others and t- um no because i think um when you get an organization that large there must be other people who are helping you and there were so all the financial functions in terms of bookkeeping accounts everything we had a team of accountants and a business manager who carried all that out the mistake that people made was they thought i personally ran the accounts and therefore they thought they must be in complete chaos and as it is the official receiver hasn't been able to identify any problems with the accounts the bookkeeping and so on so i did have number 2s in pretty much all the areas of the organization where i couldn't unload it was in fundraising funnily enough it was very hard to fundraise for this project because it wasn't a situation where it was a famous theater and somebody could put their name on a seat and sponsor a seat it was paying for kids underwear food clothes and so on so you had to create glamour for people to want to be associated with it and i found most fundraisers found that difficult to do so it was the fundraising that i couldn't unload pretty much everything else ran without mm. me i remember at the time kids company closed so you had uh yeah significant government funding and just before you closed in 2015 you they released i think 3 million pounds to you didn't they um you had a turnover at that time of close to 20 million is is that right 24 million yeah. yeah and you um had those funds released to you and then within sort of uh weeks that the 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 charity was in question and and it was looking like closing it is that these journalists just went for it um from 2014 onwards uh, just undermining writing false articles and that became very difficult uh, in terms of uh, fundraising so we turned to government and said look we need some funding and we've got all these maltreated children on our premises that nobody wants to take responsibility for so uh, the cabinet office agreed to give us 3 million and before the um, election they gave they gave us a grant and then after the election they gave us 3 million and the minute the 3 million hit our account within 10 minutes the sexual abuse allegations the the false sexual abuse allegations that brought the organization down were released yeah um, and just in terms of the the fire that you're under before that so the main um thesis of that was really around you say that you overegging you weren't delivering the numbers that you said you were doing you weren't you weren't yeah. having the imp- kids company weren't having the impact that they said they were doing and and that that was sustained over a period of time you've now got the sexual abuse um allegation that that uh, hits you and that didn't come directly to to kids company did it no it whoever cooked that up cooked it up maliciously because they took it to the news first rather than bring it to us um so i became aware of it actually on the news but on top of that they were doing things like 
um, they were releasing reports saying that I had three mansions, I ran two brothels. You know, it was quite, mm. uh, quite uh, aggressive in terms of how much they were lying. And it was all this right-wing um, journalists. Yeah. A handful of right-wing journalists. Because you, you regrouped. And from what I've read, you stepped, well, you stepped aside in terms of your day-to-day role. Because you were CEO at this point. You're founder, you were CEO, you're running the ship. Um, and you met with your trustees, I imagine, and you just offered your resignation as CEO, but stepped into a kind of presidential role. Or was that right? At that period? No, what actually happened, and this is what we're trying to get to the bottom of, because there was an element inside the cabinet office that was also involved in this toxicity, uh, and we don't quite know why or how. But what happened is that the cabinet office in 2014 sprung a, a surprised audit on Kids' Company. And they appointed the auditor, independent auditor. The audit of Kids Company's finances and functioning came out brilliant. And this wasn't what they wanted. The auditor was actually going to use Kids Company as an example of best practice. So some civil servants inside the cabinet office try and get the auditor to change the audit from a positive audit to a negative audit. And um, the the auditor refused. And the auditor was PKF Little John. Uh, the audit is actually on the internet if people want to have a look mm. at it. Um, then the next thing that happened is I said to the cabinet office, we can't continue having this number of children coming to our door without proper funding. I want the KPMG, the accountancy firm, to come in and count the numbers of children we had who were the responsibility of the state to cost them and for us and the government to get around the table to decide what we were going to do with these children, who was going to take responsibility. Because for 20 years, the government kept telling me, Camilla, thank you for taking care of these children. We'll find you proper funding. We'll solve this problem. Because when a child self-refers to a charity, no one will pay for it. This was our financial difficulty all along. Mm. You know, that no one was paying for this stream of kids coming in. When I asked the cabinet office to, to have an independent auditor come and look at our caseload, I think things became more difficult. And at that point, they demanded my resignation. And they said that if I didn't resign, they would not give Kids Company the three million pound grant, which is unprecedented because that means a government department is forcing the chief executive of a charity against whom there isn't a single complaint letter, either from any government department or within the organization to resign. Uh, and through a forced resignation, so I was in this situation that if I didn't resign as a chief executive, the charity wouldn't get the money. So I resigned. And their myth and then empowering them to be independent and thrive. And yeah. you were kids company at that time, you know, through different BBC documentaries and bits of pieces, you were kind of very much painted as a charity that was um, doing for but not empowering. Is, is that unfair? 
I think that's um, unfair because you don't say that to your own children, do you? When you have to buy your children underpants and you have to give them pocket money, you don't say uh, we're doing for you, but we're not empowering you. What you say is right now you need to be looked after until you can look after yourself. And that is no different for traumatized children, even more so because what happens to traumatized children is that uh, they get developmentally delayed. They develop competencies to interact with the world slightly later than children who haven't been harmed because of the toxic implications of child abuse and what it does to their brain and their functioning. So what we were doing is we were taking care of the kids, putting them through education, meeting their needs so their stress levels would come down. And then when they were ready, we were feeding them into the world. But there was a small group comparatively of young people who were mentally too ill and they were the most abused of the group. And as the charity grew, obviously those kids entered their early 20s, we had to decide what to do with them because it was quite clear that they couldn't survive in the outside world. And I was very accurate about that because since kids' companies closed, the majority of those kids have either ended up in mental hospitals or in sheltered programs for alcoholics and so on because they just couldn't manage. And at that point, we, we decided we were going to set up a young adults village where these kids who had no family, who were very vulnerable, could create a community that they could live in and support each other and would be staffed um, so that, you know, they could participate in the world as much as they were capable of doing. And so we were evolving solutions as we became aware of more problems that needed solving. Mm. And it, you talk about, you know, this role being the state's role and actually if kids' company found themselves doing it. And it strikes me, I suppose, as, you know, you have the freedom to do that how you want, you know, deliver care how you want, and they did at that time. And, and I guess on reflection, that combination of government um, and, and private charity was was potentially a very unique one that you got that you started it was always going to go through some difficult times i guess wasn't it because political genders change um from election to election um and you know you kind of uh like one of the sound bites that was things that's used to beat kids company at the time was around so, you know 200 pound pair of trainers now that could be over egging the the amount but that that you guys were so allegedly buy for one of the young people in your care just describe all of that like what that was going on then because you got really hard time in the media didn't you and and it's um but you believed in valuing those young people at this uh, fully and so if they needed an item of clothing you guys would get it for them so that 200 pound trainer is a really interesting story actually and worth telling it to you I was sitting in Parliament when I was questioned about this alleged £200 trainer. And I remember at the time thinking, what £200 trainer? I never bought a £200 trainer for a kid. So I didn't know what they were talking about. And then that Christmas, every Christmas, I took, um, you know, the care leavers, the kids who had no family, out for Christmas lunch. 
and one of the boys sat opposite me and he said, I have an apology to make to you. And I said, what for? I said, I am responsible for the 200 pound training you uh, were questioned about. And I said, how, how did that happen? And he said, you gave my key worker money to buy me clothes. And we went to buy the clothes. But my cousin, who's 11 years old, was being burnt in his children's home by the other kids. They were actually burning him with lighters because he didn't have any trainers. And I felt so sorry for him that I asked him to come and join us. And then I gave my money for my clothes to buy him the latest trainers. And that story is absolutely true because this 11-year-old kid, several months before, had run to my office from East London to South London to find me. And I wasn't there. I was actually giving a speech somewhere. So my PAs called me. Uh, and he'd said that he was being burnt in his children's home because he didn't have any trainers. And at the time, we called the police. And the police came and returned him to his abusing parents' household and then subsequently returned him back to the children's home where he got burnt again. Gosh. So that's the story mm. of the 200-pound yeah. trainer. And then you can take that further and you can say, well, what kind of a society have we created? Why do Nike and Adidas create adverts where these trainers are so desirable that kids on the street, if they don't have it, get beaten up? And if you have it, you're safe. So the, the, the discussion can go really wide, yeah. you know, because actually it's not the kids who pay for the advertising campaigns. It's not the kids who pay for the branding. It's these big conglomerates who market these things to the, the kids as desirable commodities. And if you're deeply disenfranchised and you think wearing a pair of trainers can disguise that, well, of course, you're going to take it up as a solution. Mm. Yeah. Who wants to be beaten up every yeah, day? Absolutely. I mean, it just what you just told me really just strikes to the complexity of the work that you're doing. And in your book, there's a line which stands out to me, which is sort of you kids company, you dealt with the dark underbelly of life. Um, and I guess because you've you've gone out and you've you've kind of got the celebrity sprinkled running over kids company uh, and and you weren't the normal run-the-mill charity um and you and you did things incredibly innovatively and different um and so when you're, you're in the middle of this um fourth resignation you're you're i imagine i could just imagine like you know stress board meetings um everyone looking at each other asking questions what do we do next what what did you do next what did happen at that point so you you did resign I did resign. The government gave the three million. So we thought then we would be fine because we had that meant we had a year's funding ahead and three months reserves. We were going to shrink the organization because government uh, had been planning for years to fund us fully. And you can see the evidence in Parliament because there was the only civil servant who stuck his neck out was the, at the time the head of the Department of Education. And um, he actually in Parliament continuously said there was nothing wrong with Kids Company. 
they were value for money. Uh, the government was planning to fully fund them like, centrally. So he told the truth, this man. And um, so we, on in the 20th year, we thought we were going to get 20 million a year and we had arrived. But in fact, what happened was we faced this uh, campaign of attack. And um, I resigned as the government, as the cabinet office wanted. And um, we received the three million, but within 10 minutes of receiving that money, the sexual abuse allegations uh, emerged mm. out of nowhere. Yeah. So just, just before and we go on to that, because that's really important, the crucial part of the story, but just before we go on to that, so mm. you've got effectively what, I like, what they call in the city is a run on your money. So you've got... Um, fundraising has become incredibly difficult because people are spreading, you know, informa misinformation. Malicious exactly. Rumors, yeah. um, fundraising, yeah. you're, you're stepping down as CEO and you've told me that you're actually, you know, crucial part of the fundraising because you, you were the storyteller, key storyteller and, what, yeah. you know, so so private sources of money um, were becoming incredibly difficult. Government, we're going to buy you some time, hopefully, Um and they gave mm -hmm. you the three million. You had enough money to survive, um, and then your, um, you know, the sort of death knell was really the allegations. Which did they hit to as a news night and Buzzfeed first, and you got to know about it second. Your board and you got to know about it second. Yeah, I actually. So what happened is the three million from the cabinet office hits our bank account. Ten minutes later, the police call saying we want a meeting. They don't tell us what about. And we were used to meeting with the police because we used to discuss a lot of high-risk situations together. So I didn't think anything of it. I thought we'll go and meet the police and they'll tell us another high-risk situation we have to manage. Yeah. yeah. But then that evening, suddenly news on all the news programs was the allegation that kids' company staff were sexually abusing children and allowing sexual abuse on the premises. I actually found out about it on TV. So I then realized what the police wanted to meet us for. It was, we were being accused of sexually abusing children. And the police carried out a seven month, the most thorough investigation and they found all the allegations to be false. And, and the, the charity but, closed its doors by this point. Um, but yeah, yeah, because the because what happened is um, the funders who were going to give us money for that year, when they saw the sexual abuse allegations on the news, they started talking about withdrawing their funds, and rightly so. Who wants to fund an organisation? that is being accused of sexually abusing the children in its care. Mm. And at that point, the trustees met and decided in order not to be insolvent and operating insolvently, the right thing to do was to shut the charity. Yeah. And you had a really tight board, didn't you? So you'd, you'd been, uh, um, your yeah. chair, Alan Yentob, had been your chair for a, from the very beginning or soon after the start? Yeah, yeah soon after mm. the start. We had a highly experienced board, and this is the other thing people don't realize. We had a partner in a major law firm. We had uh, a banker stroke accountant 
who owned his own financial company. And then we had someone who'd been the chief executive of several companies and had actually done a financial review of the government's functioning in the Department of Education. These were not amateurs. And they held the organization to account all the time. They scrutinized everything. And as it is, the official receiver, what are they taking us to court for? Business court? No crime identified. Business court. They're taking us to business court on the grounds that the kids self-referred and consequently we had an unsustainable business model. And this is what they're going to spend millions on trying to prosecute these poor uh trustees who gave their time for free because the narrative has not separated itself from its political agenda. Yeah, and I felt I felt for those trustees at that time because, like you say, they give them yeah. their time for free, that they're experts in their field. Kids, the kids' company mm. um, became incredibly toxic for them, didn't it? Um, well, what, yeah. What, yeah. Like, well, just kind of thinking about the, the kind of impact on them as human beings, what, what do you think, what did you see? I mean, it was horrible. Alan Yentop had to resign from one of his positions at the BBC and I remember him telling me and me crying because I was thinking he's so unjust. This man has worked so hard to help us and we're there asking him to leave, you know, because actually everyone was afraid once the brand turned from a positive brand to a negative brand, then no one wanted to talk to us, no one wanted to be involved, no one wanted to help, except there were a handful of very well-known um, A-listers who stuck by the kids and gave me funding so that I could stabilize the kids because, of course, all the kids were left when the charity closed, no one picked up the kids either. Mm. And that was Chris Martin was one of those, wasn't it? And Coldplay, um, among, amongst they, others. They, they've been amazing. Mm. They've been yeah. amazing. Uh, Joanna Lumley, Chris Martin, a few others. I don't necessarily have permission mm. to name them. But, you know, let me tell you something. It, it, um, the people that I knew were genuine ended up being genuine. And the people I knew were joining us because of the branding ended up being, uh, you know, anti. Yeah, yeah, good instinct on uh, that. And, yeah. Mm, and do you, yeah, it was do you have, like, you know, any regrets? What Could you have done things differently in terms of, you know, a kids' company could still be, like, like place to be, could still be in existence to this day? Like, the, I, I genuinely, this is my honest take on it is, you, yeah, you you created the organisation in your in your sort of you know as, as part of your DNA or in your shadow, whatever the way you want to describe it. But actually, if you just had a bit more help at that top end of the organisation, do you think it would exist to to this day? And because your your skill was clearly fundraising, and someone could have done the more of the day to day, or do you think I'm getting that wrong? You know, um, you are applying your very logical mind to the situation. So you're saying, you know, logically, what could have gone wrong? And therefore, what could I have done differently? What 
is hard for you to digest and believe understandably because it's so hard to uh, visualize it and grasp it is that there could potentially be um, a really aggressive drive to completely destroy a charity. And what people tend to do is they tend to look for the logical reason for why the charity collapsed. And they then apply logical questions like, could she have done something differently? Could she have done it better? And so on. And of course, all, the answer to those is yes, I could have done everything better. You know, we all could. But that is not the reason the organization closed. Mm. Can you talk about in your book about the one thing? Cause, because you had such high profile and, and we talked about the different fields that you, you know, absolutely mm -hmm. nailed. But you, you basically created a lens to a magnifying lens to poverty. So and it was and your point in the book is that Britain didn't want that anymore. They wanted to sort of brush a, the, a bit of the poverty story under the table. Would that be true? I think um, the core problem of Britain is in its child protection and child mental health services. It is the most underfunded, dysfunctional structure. And the dysfunction resides in the fact that they can only cope with a certain number of children being allowed in through their doors. So social services limit the numbers of children that get in for child protection and child mental health do the same. It's unspoken, but this is what goes on. And that's how they stay within budget. But what they then leave outside the doors of social services and child mental health is deeply troubled children who grow up severely traumatized and disturbed. And as adults, they become very dysfunctional parents and therefore a cycle of harm is repeated and until Britain faces the truth of this it will continue having trouble and I think the problem with Kids Company was on a very simplistic level our databases were so sophisticated by 2015 that we could tell you exactly how many maltreated children we were getting from which London boroughs and what had happened to them and this I think for government was quite horrific because we were now capturing alternative numbers to the ones that government wanted to exhibit. And if you think I'm deluded in saying this, the proof is in the pudding, because in 2012, large numbers of children were found to be sexually abused uh, in an economy of child exploitation right across Britain. And it was in the hundreds mm. and none of them had been picked up by social care agencies. Yeah. And I think that was the core problem the government had with mm. me. And that, that's absolutely, I mean, that those cases are true and, and that, that information did come out and those, those children weren't uh, victimized. Um, and, and you were, yeah, I, I hear where, where you're um, going with that in terms of, because it's the motivation really behind the book, because it's called child protection in Britain, the truth. Um, was really to mm. unlo unlock this, isn't it? Yeah. I wanted to show in that book how pervasive and harmful 
child maltreatment was, both in terms of the way the children were treated, but now we also understand that maltreatment and its consequences can mark the gene through epigenetic pathways. That means that the emotional feelings that a child who's been sexually abused had of being overwhelmed and horrified can get passed on down the generations as feeling memories to children who are not being sexually abused but nevertheless experience these feeling disturbances that they can't put their finger on. So, you know, if you worry about climate change, you should worry just as much about the implications of childhood maltreatment in how it destroys the fabric of a society. And the, the, one of the problems that British society has is that it's got a very powerful sadomasochistic pedophile uh, hidden trend amongst its powerful people. So not only child abuse is in poor neighborhoods, but it's also generated through generations of maltreatment in, in, in amongst the very rich. And consequently, there are high levels of perversion, which mean that children continue being harmed, whether they're in rich households or poor households, and that has to be addressed. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, that, and the re replication the, of, know, of psychological damage, um, you know, borne out by abuse of power, um, you've talked about poverty, you know, that's the clearly a huge pressure on people and, and replicates harm. Um, you, you, like you're, you're, yeah. but, but, but there's also what then happens is workers get damaged because if you're a worker in social services and you're continuously getting children coming through your doors who are being harmed and whose lives you can't sort out properly because you don't have the budget for it, the social worker undergoes change. They become immune to this level of harm. They shut down their abilities to feel because they can't cope with facing their own failure every day. So not only you've got at one end extraordinary levels of child abuse, at the other end you've got a workforce that's becoming immune to it and a government that keeps giving the agenda its reject second thought ministers and never gives it the leading minister so that some vision and change can occur. And I think this is the core problem. And I suppose the one thing I would do differently, and these are the questions you asked me, is I, next time round, I would not run a service delivery and an advocacy agency simultaneously. Because when they don't like your message, they attack your service. Mm. And I think I would do that um, differently next yeah, time. Yeah, that's... that's um really interesting and as we move towards wrapping up um you know what's what's next for camilla and and um i you know i know from the very start of the call when we before we started recording you, you're still really active uh, and your mission hasn't changed but just what does the next five to ten years look like for you do you think well what i would like to do what we were beginning to do with kids company is we started a campaign called See the Child to Change the System and 28,000 members of the public had joined it. Um, and 
so had all the professional agencies. This was the amazing thing. So Institute of Psychiatry, all the all the people who deal with children had joined this campaign. And what we were going to do was completely redesign children's services uh, so that they become contemporary, fit for purpose, and embracing of the new learning that tells us do not divide psychology, social circumstances, and biology. They are completely intertwined. And if you want to help a child properly, you have to address all of those simultaneously. So a new service paradigm is needed with more sophisticated interventions. And I would like to write that protocol and have it ready so that if in the future there was a sensible prime minister, they could maybe pilot it and see if we can break this cycle of failure that is in children's services. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. And I think we should clarify that, um, you know, you and Kids Company and the trustees went up in front of, other, you know, business courts, uh, charity commission uh, reviews, um, the police did the investigation on sexual abuse allegations, and, and actually nothing's been found. There's, not, is there any, there's nothing outstanding on, on uh, those no, parties. No, the only thing that they're going to do, because... I can see that they have no choice but to do it after all the fuss they created. The Department of Business, in the shape of the official receiver, is taking the trustees and I to business court, not criminal court, on the grounds that the kids self-referred and consequently we had an unsustainable business model. And they're going to spend millions on this court case and they describe it as public interest. But I think it's public face-saving, to be mm, honest. Mm. Because at the end of the day, it was proven I didn't have mansions, I didn't run brothels, I didn't have chauffeurs, I didn't walk off with the cabinet office money, I didn't do any of the things that they accused me of doing in such a systematic and aggressive way. And I think very few people would be able to save an organisation against an assault like that. Yeah. And just describe so life for you at the moment so you you're are you living in south london no no i i have a little flat in west hampstead which i've always lived in it's got no tv it's got no luxury but it's beautiful full of children's drawings and lovely books and i'm just waiting to see uh what will happen next really because you know obviously my future is in the hands of uh, whoever these people are who are cooking these stories. Yeah. And, and I have to wait till the truth comes yeah, out. Yeah. Hey, I really appreciate you sharing your story um, with me. And um, it's been a fantastic conversation and, and great to unpick. Um, you know, because maybe listening to this outside uh, of the UK, but um, it was a huge story. Uh, and and um, it's really good to go back and sort of lay some truth over it. Uh, real real pleasure to have uh, met you all those years ago and still be connected. Um, oh, thank uh, you. There's one thing I wanted yeah. to tell you that maybe will be useful for your people. One of the things I realised as a result of running this charity is that people always think that if you offer help, the recipient will gratefully receive it. But what I've realized is that help is very painful 
to receive. Um, and I, I think people who run charities should become more aware. I wasn't aware of the implications, the complex feelings that help recipients mm. have. Uh, and I, I think it's worth someone doing some research into yeah, that. Yeah, that's interesting. And, mm. Hadn't yeah. hadn't thought of it in that way, but um, and how do you think that manifests itself? Like, well, I think um, you they there is great ambivalence, you know, because the helper has incredible power to give the help, and the recipient would ideally not. Mm -hmm.